You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Heart of Jesus, we let Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, drive us to Scripture, where we discover who Jesus truly is. Good morning, everybody. My name is Joe. I know I didn't, I forgot to introduce myself. It was, I was pinch hitting as far as prayer and scripture. Um, <laughs> so I, I forgot to do that. My name is Joe. I'm the, the lead pastor here. I get the privilege of um, being so. Today, we're going to continue our series in the heart of Jesus. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, if you want to turn your Bibles there. Um, we're really focusing in on, on one verse, uh, but we're going to get the gist of the whole chapter. I know that. Um, as I um, go through this chapter, and as I know through my study, um, there could be like different those um, that know the Bible well, and like, oh man, there's going to be some neat things that he's going to explain to me today. No, I'm not. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're going to do an overview of what chapter 7 is adjusting so that we can get at the heart of Jesus, which is him inter- interceding with us. We've said that multiple times already this service. That is the point. That is, that is the thing that you are going to be walking out the door with today. And so I'm going to say it multiple times, and I'm going to try to prove it from the Bible, and hopefully it'll be etched in your mind that throughout this week you can apply the gospel to your everyday life. That's the purpose of us doing all this, so that you can be reminded um, that Jesus is interceding for you every moment of every day. He's there, right? So again, last week we began the series, The Heart of Jesus, seeing what we are to properly do with our guilt. Right? As we, we walked through that passage, we saw that, that Jesus was challenging these people and, and, and they were not properly dealing with their guilt. And what did Jesus say? He said, come to me. Come to me. That's what you do with your guilt. Right? You don't try to go and perform your way back into the good favor of God. And you don't run and punish yourself and adding to the gospel. You go to him, right? You go to him. We lay down our performance and we stop punishing ourselves. We just go to him. Why? Because he is gentle and lowly in heart. He is there. His arms are open. He is waiting for you when we stumble when we sin, because we will. We are saints, but we still sin, right? So today we're going to turn the diamond just a little bit more and, and, and just see a little bit different idea of his heart, a little bit different of who Jesus is, who God is, and his heart for his people. And that's his constant intercession on our behalf. I mean, stop and think about that. If someone prays for you, There is nothing they get in return, right? Praying for somebody is a godly thing because there's nothing in return that you're getting. Jesus' heart is, he is interceding for you every moment of every day. It's a great privilege to be prayed for by someone that takes the time to intercede on your behalf before God. A brother and sister. In Christ, I know that that the elders of the church pray regularly for you. Like I have a, I do it with an app. I'm regularly goes through the rotation where each of you get prayed for throughout the week. Interceding. This is Jesus's heart. 
It's right this moment Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. Right this moment. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is making a case. He's making a case for Derek. He's making a case for Sam. He's making a case for Jordan. He's making a case for Joe and this Joe. He's making a case on, on your behalf before the Father. Right this minute. This may lead you to another question. Why should Jesus need to intercede for us? After all, if we are in Christ, we're fully justified. I mean, that was probably the first question I had in my mind is like, okay, I read this, like part of the book, again, maybe some of you, I know most of you weren't here last week or some of you were not here last week. Um, this sermon series is coming out of the book, Gentle and Lowly, where I'm just taking the passages and, and, and discussing them um, as far as, as we see the heart of Jesus, right? So that, that was the question for me is, if we are fully justified in Christ, if his atoning work did all the, the work, right, then why does he need to intercede for us? Was something left incomplete in his atoning work on the cross? No, it is complete. What his intercession is doing is applying the atonement, atonement accomplished. It's applying it to your life every single day. It is the moment-by-moment application of the atoning work. Think of it this way, and, and, and Nate already gave you the picture. It's, it's consistently hitting the refresh button on your justification. Consistently hitting the refresh button on your justification before the Father. Right? That's the idea of Jesus interceding for us. He's consistently reminding the Father, even though you've stumbled and fallen, even though you have sinned, He's still there interceding in your place, saying, no, it's covered by my blood. It's covered, right? Turn your wrath away. It is covered by the blood. This reveals to us, I think, just how personal your salvation is to him. You know, sometimes I, I think that we think salvation is kind of like a formula, A plus B equals C, right? And a lot of times we think of it as something that happened way back here, but it is still happening, right? You were saved, you are being saved, and one day you will be completely saved, right? We leave out the relationship part. Think about this. God the Father has great delight in saying yes to the Son. We see that all through the Bible. God the Father has great delight in saying yes to the Son. So right now the Son is at the right hand of the Father saying, Look, I know that, that Joe messed up, me. But my atoning work has covered it. Jesus is reminding the Father that you are justified moment by moment. We have a picture of intercession in, in Moses in the passage that was read this morning, Exodus 32, 12 through 14 says this. This is Moses interceding for the people of Israel where God's just going to take them out. He's like, I'm done, we're taking them out, right? Verse 12 says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, this is his case. He's making a case before God. Why should the Egyptians say with an evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken to bring on his people. He relented because Moses interceded for them. That's exactly what Jesus is doing right now. He is interceding for us. I mean, sometimes I think we have this image like, what is Jesus doing right now? Is he just sitting up there on the throne? Because, you know, they give us the picture. He's sitting on the right hand of the throne. I mean, is he just sitting up there eating grapes and just hanging out and waiting for God to say, okay, it's your time. Go, Go consummate your kingdom. Go get them. No, he's interceding for us. He is interceding for us. Or maybe you're like me. Whenever I read this chapter, it hit me so hard because maybe you're like me. I just really never thought about it. I never really thought about what does it mean that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now. What is he doing? Right? Is he just hanging out or what? I I just never really thought about it. Let me just read a passage from the book. His interceding for us reflects his heart. The same heart that carried him through life and down into death on behalf of his people is a heart that now manifests itself in constant pleading with and reminding and prevailing upon his Father to always welcome us. Always welcome us. All two billion of us he's praying for. So I've told you what he's doing. Now I need you to see it from the Bible and how the Bible lays it out. And again, chapter 7 of Hebrews is a very dense chapter. And you can write, and they have written. (laughs) They have spilled lots of ink about this chapter. So what I want to do is just kind of give you an overview because... It's kind of hard. I, I was just trying to, and, and I, I just pray that, you know, if, if I lose you, I apologize. It is, it is very technical and it's very hard. And if you don't have a lot of the Old Testament set in your mind, I'm going to say things. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Right? And so it says, just keep moving. We'll get to the end and you'll get the, the main thrust of what he's trying to show us. But I, th- I think it's good and right for me to, to try to show you from the Word what He's trying to say about Jesus and, and why He can still intercede for us. And maybe along the, way God, along the way, God will put some things together for you that maybe you're missing on how this all works. So we need to, to see this from the Bible. So turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 11, and I'm going to read down to 28. Here's what the Word of God says. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For then there is a change in the priesthood. There is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah in the connection with the tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not in the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of indestructible life. Do you see what I mean? How like you're reading this and you're like, man, there's this like every two words I need to figure out what this is, what this is, what this was, what this is, right? Let's let's just keep going. Um, 
For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For, one, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and, and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it, it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will change his mind, you are priests forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 25, that's our money verse. That's what we're focusing in on. For it is indeed fitting that he should, he would have uh, such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did not uh, once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of oath which came latter than the law appoints his son who was made perfect forever. So in other words, what he's trying to argue, and he does it in very in-depth thing, is the idea of a priestly, human priestly that dies, and then Jesus is from a different order and he lives forever. That's how we know that he's continually making intercession for us at the throne, at the right hand of the Father right now. That's kind of like the... the the, the 30,000 foot view. So who is this Melchizedek guy? Well, you can, again, spend hours and, and, and days researching that. I believe it was a person. I believe it was a, a real person. I don't believe it was a manifestation. Um, I really believe that we just need to understand that he was a type of Jesus Christ. In other words, what he was doing is he was pointing to Jesus. That's why he's in Genesis, Right? He's only in Genesis, and then he's in Psalms 110, and then he's here, right? He's a type of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek shows us the excellency of Jesus. He is both king and priest. See, that's the biggest difference, right? The priests were only priests, but this Melchizedek was also a king and a priest. And so is Jesus. He's the king of kings, and he's also a priest, right? He's, he's both. He's a bearer of righteousness and peace, and one who reigns and serves forever, we see there the ministry of Christ, for as Melchizedek met Abraham after his battle, to acclaim him and invite him to receive what? Bread and wine. Which is a picture of what? What we do in communion. Christ's body, Christ's blood. He's pointing forward to Jesus. He's a type of Christ. So also Christ says to us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what the author is doing is he's going to compare Michal, Michal, why can I say that? Melchizedek with Jesus. And he's going to try to show us that the priestly idea of Melchizedek is different than the priestly idea of Aaron, which is in succession, right? You had to be in born in the family of priests, right? He's, he's trying to show us that there's two different ones. One got their authority because my, my father was a priest, right? Jesus, Melchizedek, got the authority because of an oath, because of a promise that God made. You see the difference that he's trying to make here? He's trying to show the, the difference, right? 
moving forward, and that was verses 1 through 10, right? Moving forward in verses 11 through 19, the writer shows us Jesus is a better hope offered than the old covenant. If you look down in verse 19, this is where I'm getting this, right? For the law made nothing imperfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. There's a better hope, right? The law, all it did, all the rules did. Now, what makes this whole passage make sense is Leviticus 1 through 10. And how many of us have really dived into that or just kind of skimmed through it during our, our yearly Bible reading plan, right? Let's be honest. This, this, this is what would make this all perfectly sense. If, you're, if you love that kind of stuff and you read Leviticus, then you're reading through this. And yep, there's this and this and this and it's all pointing together for you. But that's, what's, that's what he's trying to compare. That he is a better hope. Where the law, all it did is cause death. It showed you where you're wrong, right? And you waited once a year where the high priest went into the elder and, and, and sacrificed the animal and covered your blood. But you were never freed from it. As you are today because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And you were freed from it. Right? You're freed from it. How is he a better hope? We find this in the difference between the administration of salvation. How one is saved. The old covenant administered salvation through the outward commandment of the law. Follow the rules. Right? Follow the rules. We can't do that. We mess up every time. The new administration salvation through the transformation power of the life. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, changes your heart, and then you can properly respond to God. Where before your heart was hard and you could not respond to God. You did not respond to God. It was impossible for you to respond to God. Now the heart has changed and you can respond. The power of sin has been broken. The Holy Spirit's dwelling in you. Yes, I, there's sins that I still struggle with, but I can look back and, and see sins that, that God has delivered me from. Amen? They didn't have that opportunity. They just dealt with it. They, they trusted and believed back in the Old Testament that, that, that the, the sacrifice covered the sins and God's not going to take us out. <laughs> of course, this is Joe's um, version of understanding. Jesus' perfect life and shed blood fulfilled the law, the outward commandment. And his offer of spiritual rebirth into internal life draws us near to God. This is the contrast Jesus presented while on earth. In John 7, 37 and 38, says, On the last days of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me is, is as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Believe in me. I have fulfilled the law. Believe in me. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, of course, that's what he's talking about. That's the river of, of, of water that's flowing out of us. The Holy Spirit that dwells in us. A better hope because God is doing all the heavy lifting. God is doing it all. He's doing all the lifting. He, he sent Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. He sent the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us. He's doing all the heavy lifting. This is all accomplished through Jesus' priestly ministry. And this is what he's trying to compare in this chapter. Jesus is a priest. Just like the priest of old, right? The priest in the Old Testament, right? He is our high priest. He is the one that goes into the Holy of Holies and makes a sacrifice for us. The Day of Atonement, they would go in, right? The high priest would go in and make the sacrifice. And that's what would wash away your sins in the Old Testament. Jesus has done that once and for all. 
He no longer has to make any more sacrifices. So we need to stop making sacrifices by doing good works or performing or thinking that we're going to punish ourselves. We need to stop making sacrifices. We need to trust in the grace that God has poured out on us. He is our high priest. He's right now in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is very respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the times of need. We draw near to God. We run to the cross. Jesus is there with his open arms. He's already in the holy holies calling out, come to me. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. He is our high priest. And then verses 20 through 25 in this chapter tell us that he is our eternal and permanent priest. He is eternal and permanent, right? Because he lives forever. He is the guarantee of God's covenant. Reigning forever in heaven. He assures our salvation. The author of Hebrews gets at this by the means of his exposition of, of Psalms 110 verse 4. Which is the basis of the teaching of this whole chapter. And Psalms 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn, this is David talking, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever at the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever. Jesus is the priest forever. Psalms 110 is a Davidic psalm that speaks of the Messianic king who would come to save his people. Earlier he connected Jesus to the order of Melchizedek, which refers specifically to how the priest is brought into office. How is he brought into office? Not because he's in the line of Aaron, we know that he was in the line of Judah, but because of the oath, because of promise, the promise of God. All the priests up to this point have been of Aaron's order, a descendant of Aaron. Jesus is not a descendant of Aaron. He is in the line of Judah, the line of the kings. Jesus will be brought into the office through a promise, promise God's oath. Let's read in, in verses 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. There was no oath in Aaron's line. There was just succession. My dad was a priest. My son will be a priest. My grandson will be a priest. My great-grandson will be a priest. Understand what he's trying to differentiate here. But this one has made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will, will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In other words, God said it. That's what he's trying to say. Jesus is a priest because God said so. It's an oath. And then you could really dive deep into how the oath and the covenant and Abraham and all that happened there. And we don't have time for that. But it's, it's interesting. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's what verse 22 says. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In what manner then does God's oath make Jesus' priesthood the guarantee of a better covenant? Well, the oath serves as a seal of God's promise. His intention to send a promised Messiah. One commentator put it this way. The divine oath verifies the absolute reliability of the priesthood of Christ. Upon which the, um, the hopes of the Christian community are anchored. The achievement of its purpose is assured. Because God put him in the line. Because God made the oath. Because God's the one that said this. 
is why Jesus is forever a priest. We have seen the idea of an oath or a guarantee before. Have we not? We've seen it several places in the Bible. What does a rainbow mean? Rainbow is a covenant that God will not destroy the earth through flood. Right? This is the same idea. Through this order of Melchizedek, Jesus is a priest forever. Right? By comparison, we see how much greater is the oath established Jesus as the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. As long as Jesus lives, the covenant will stand. Right? As long as Jesus lives. In other words, it's hindering on one hinders on the other. If Jesus lives forever, then the covenant stands forever. And he's trying to say Jesus is living forever. He's at the right hand of the Father right now. Right? As long as Jesus lives, the covenant will stand, and he lives forever. He is the very son of the living God, the one who died and yet death and yet death could not hold him. As Jesus said in the book of Revelation, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's what we're going to celebrate next Sunday, right? His resurrection. He lives forever. Richard Phillips sums it up well. Jesus is the one whom God the Father exalted to the heavens according to the promise. You are a priest forever. That's the promise. Therefore, God sees Jesus Christ in heaven, the second person in the Trinity and the eternal Son, in the humanity he took up in the virgin birth, and God is visually reminded of the oath he made. He sees his own appointment, uh, appointed surety, the security he himself established to seal the covenant of our salvation. Therefore, because Jesus lives, we too will live. This is what the writer of Hebrews in verses 23 and 24 says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This is the argument he's making. Jesus is a priest because of an oath, oath made by God, a promise made by God. And this promise says that Jesus will live forever. He will be a priest forever. That means that the new covenant lives forever because it lives because Jesus is the one that fulfilled it. So therefore, we live with him forever because we are in Christ Jesus is a better hope. Jesus is our high priest who brings us close to God, who is promised by God to be fulfillment of oath that he made to Abraham. Brought forward by David in Psalms 110, who is not in the order of Aaron, who all of which are no longer in office because they died. He lives forever. He lives forever. The simplest way I know to, how to say this is the writer is making the case that Jesus lives forever, which means the covenant lives forever. His priestly duties live forever. After reflecting on Christ's abiding permanent priesthood, the writer concludes and gives us the so what. Okay, Joe, I've just heard you spew all that out. So what? Right? As the preaching professor in the back says... So what? Well, Hebrews 7.25 is the so what. 
It is the, the glorious truth. Consequently, because, therefore, pick a word, for he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near. He is able to save to the uttermost. Uttermost denotes comprehensiveness, completeness, exhaustive wholeness. <laughs> right? What is the point of saying this? We who know our hearts understand. If we're going to be honest, if we honestly look in the mirror, we can honestly say this. We are to the uttermost sinners. <laughs> we need an uttermost Savior. Right? We need one that's going to completely save us. This is going to exhaustively save us. Going back to last week, we, we operate many times because of, our, because of our guilt, either in performance or punishment, which is the essence of trying to strengthen his saving work through our contribution, right? We're trying to add to it. We kind of read this passage this way. Jesus is able to save, for the most part, those who draw near to God through him. For the most part. I need to do a little bit. Right? For the most part. That's kind of how we read it. Right? Jesus is able to save for the most part those who draw near to God. No, that's not what the passage says. He is to save to the uttermost, to completeness. Our presence in God's good favor and family will never sputter and die. It will never sputter and die. Our presence in God's good favor and being part of his family will never go away. It will not like putter out like an engine running out of gas. It will never go away. From the book, God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost, and he saves us to the uttermost. Because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. But how do we know that he saves us to the uttermost? The text tells us. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is always bringing his atoning life, death, and resurrection before his Father in a moment-by-moment -moment way. And this should give us great comfort. This should give us great comfort. In what areas does this give us great comfort? In two places, our sanctification and our assurance. Our sanctification and our assurance. The Bible is clear. We are saints who continue to sin. However, Christ continues to intercede on our behalf in heaven because we continue to fail on earth. <laughs> As we are progressively long being sanctified from one glory to another... What keeps us going, what knows that we can, we can get up and, and go through the next day, even though yesterday was not very good, is that Jesus is interceding for us. He is at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. 
He does not forgive us through his work on the cross and then hope we make it the rest of the way. <laughs> right? He just says, it's like, oh, I've done my part. Now you guys you figure it out. Just make sure you got it all right when I come back. No, that's not what he's doing. That's not his heart. His heart is that he is interceding for us moment by moment. Jesus is praying for you right now. He is praying for you right now. He, he was praying for you at your highest point this week. And he was praying for you at your lowest point this week. He always lives to intercede for you. And if Jesus is always hitting the refresh button on my justification before the Father, then I am eternally secure. I am eternally secure. You know, I remember reading this chapter of the book. I remember what I experienced. It was, it was, it was like joy with tears, and it was like, okay, it's, it's beyond just a doctrine that I understand. It's become a relationship that I know my Savior, Jesus, cares for me so much that it's not just me just remembering that, okay, if, if you're the elect and you're saved and you're secure in all the doctrines, it's actually me being reminded that Jesus is at the right hand praying for me, even when I'm stumbling. He's praying for me when I'm so-so. He's praying for me when I'm on the highest of highs. It took it out of this context of just being a doctrine of assurance where what people get accused, you know, the once saved, always saved people, right? You're right, we are. Saved by an eternal God, by an eternal Jesus, an eternal priest who is consistently and always interceding for us. Can I just say this for those of us who came out of a church and I am one of them who taught you that you can somehow lose your salvation and especially for those who still have friends and family who believe this and live in this fear take them to this passage show them this passage remind yourself of this passage because in two weeks he will, we will learn he will never let us go. But he is always interceding for us. When you have a stretch where you have sinned so much for so long that you doubt your salvation, remember Jesus is praying for you. Always. He is always praying for you. Let me just close with Paul speaking of this. And he does so in the context of our eternal security. In Romans 8, 31 through 39, which is our New Testament passage, just listen to his words. Jesus is interceding for you. And listen to all the things that he's saying now that we know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will we not... So with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is it at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us? 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you know him like that today? Do you see him, his heart with open arms, praying for you this very moment, interceding for you. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I I just pray if there's anyone here that Lord, that doesn't know you like this, who is not in Christ, Lord, I pray that you will send the Holy Spirit that you will change their hearts so they may respond. Respond in faith and trust in you, the one who is our priest, the one that lives forever, who is at the right hand of the Father interceding and praying. And Lord, for those that have walked with him for a long time, I, I pray that maybe this is just a reminder or maybe this is a something that's new Lord, I pray that we would rest in it, that we would find comfort in it. Lord, that this would help us to lay down our performance. Lord, that we would just trust in you and fall into your arms. Lord, I thank you so much for your word and for Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.